The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Rubble, rubble. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Rubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This week's guest, Rebecca Solnit, may forever be associated with the word mansplaining. She did not invent the word, but it came into popular use around the same time that her book, Men Explain Things to Me, came out. And they both prompted the national conversation, which I suppose we have always been having or still having. And in a way, the fact that she is associated with this word, with this idea, to have this iconic status, I suppose that could be considered a good thing. But as Solnit observes in her current book, Recollections of My Non-Existence, when art remains relevant to contemporary audiences, it's because its critique is still relevant. The problem the author grappled with is still a problem. Solnit's new book is a memoir of sorts, though it is also about, and it is mostly about, violence against women. If you are not in a space where you can hear a discussion about that, then please hold off on listening to our conversation until you are. But I hope you can listen eventually, because she is amazing and, unfortunately, quite relevant. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. So I know you've been on your book tour, and I have noticed that uh, people have taken that opportunity to talk to you about some current events, because a lot of what you write about has relevancy to current events. But I wanted to let you know that I am not particularly interested in talking to you about headlines. Um, There is, unfortunately, a lot in your book that is evergreen. Um, But one of the things I I really loved, one of the lessons I feel like I learned from your book was the idea that if something remains, if a piece of art remains relevant and evergreen, that's because the problem it existed to solve or to comment on is still with us. Absolutely. I joke that men could make all my feminist writing obsolete if they would just stop doing that stuff. They have it in their power (laughs) and they haven't taken that opportunity, which I have essentially offered to them. But seriously, I look sometimes at Mary Wollstonecraft writing in the late 18th century, 19th century suffragists and things, and it's really dismaying how often talking about unequal access to education and other places of power and experience and connection, 
and social change, uh, you know, inequality in marriage and personal relationships, violence, etc., are still things we're dealing with. We have not fixed the problem and moved on. And so even that old stuff is not all obsolete. I think I want to start with some of the more personal parts of this memoir, which are which is which is a not very memoirish memoir. I would say um. <laughs> it's sort of funny because, like, my first reaction is a good girl's to be like, "Oops," and my second one is like, "Ha, that was secretly my intention <laughs> was to really use myself in some ways as a specimen and as a fish swimming through a big history." Yes, yes. And when I say more personal, I realized even as I was saying it, the personal stuff is really. I mean, you write beautifully about some specific experiences, but. I could feel you creating space for resonance uh, as you as you wrote. I think that there's a supposition in this culture often that one writes a memoir because something exceptional has happened to you. And I have had a quirky life in a lot of ways, but I really wanted to write about what gender violence and the threat of it and the ubiquity of it does to you. And in that, I really wanted to emphasize how ordinary my experience was not extraordinary. All women live under patriarchy to some extent. All women are impacted by male violence in some way, even if they haven't examined how, why they don't do this, why they don't go there, why they're careful here, why they're placating there. But I really wanted to try and recover ground I'd covered in political feminist essays to say this is what it does to you this is the inter- this is the internal life the life of the psyche for a young woman in a world where apparently a lot of men want to harm torture violate and kill women the book is called of course uh, recollections of my non-existence which is a funny title for a memoir uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. But the, and the book is about creating yourself, right? Like it, it, is, it that, is to me that is that is one of the stories that I read into it. Yeah, it feels like there's two things going against each other. I guess since I wrote it, I don't have to say feels like one of which is just. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a little social media argument with someone who said crazy stuff about me on the interwebs and at us about. Claiming that, claiming what my record was, and at, at a certain point, I said, "I am the world's leading expert on me," which kind of <laughs> took her aback a little. At um, lady trolls, they exist too. But yeah, I mm-hmm. wanted to write about something that's very generic, which is the forces that want to silence and erase women, push them out of the room, out of full participation, and about my particular path through that in some ways very ordinary as a woman, in some ways very peculiar as somebody who set out as soon as I learned how to read to become a writer. And the opposite of that erasure is having a voice. And a writer formalizes the work all of us have to do to find out who we are, where we belong, what we have to say, who will listen to it. You know, I think we all have this process of self-creation. I think all of us are artists making the one master work of our life, which is ourself, if it works out. And of course, it doesn't always, and it's always in process. But 
as a writer, you formalize that and put it out publicly. Here's my voice. Here's my views. Here's what I think about the world. Here's what I think we should pay attention to. So there's a very particular kind of resistance and also a kind of parallel in that the publishing the publishing industry when I was a young woman was full of men who preferred that I not be there and not get published and not say anything and not have books. And that was part of my adventure of being a young woman. We still haven't talked about anything specific about oh. your memoir, about stuff that has happened to you. But I, So I wanted to bring up something really specific, which is um, your home, which is a character in this work. Uh, the studio apartment that you came into as a young woman. Yeah. Tell us about it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it became this huge force in uh, the book. And thank you for calling it a character. I I am a person who's so sheltered and encouraged and impacted and given refuge by places. And they are major forces in, I think, all our lives. So when I was 19 and poor and friendless, had been cut off by my parents financially a few years ago, really struggling, I set out. It was 1981, Super Bowl Sunday weekend, the week after Ronald Reagan's inauguration, when everything in this country was going to start heading in the opposite direction. But I went apartment hunting in San Francisco. I could only afford $200 a month, which people were laughing at me for. Even then, it wasn't very much. And without really understanding what I was doing, I ended up in a black neighborhood because of redlining and all the other forms of racism. That's where the really affordable stuff was. And this building manager welcomed me into a building, helped me sneak around the fact that they didn't actually want to rent to me and become a resident in his building and this little apartment, but this beautiful, luminous, sunlit little studio apartment from the 1920s. Not that tiny. It wasn't a shoebox. It was a jewel box (laughs) with a lot of beautiful detailing, a a bay window in the kitchen and two more in the main room. And um, it was such a beautiful gift from this really kind man who was a big part of my life for the next eight years before he died of prostate cancer and um, gave me the space in which I would form myself, begin my life as a writer, write so many of my books and really form myself. And so it was, the apartment was a huge character and this was a huge moment when a complete stranger decided to give me a gift and neither of us knew how big it was because neither of us could imagine I would stay for 25 years and what I would do while I was there. It was also really nice since this is a book about male violence to begin the book with a great act of kindness and really protection by a man who could see I really needed and wanted a place in the world and used his power to give me one. One of the many things I really loved about this book, and I think it 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 is there in the story of this studio apartment where you went to live by yourself to create yourself, is that you recover a lot of themes and ideas and traits that society tends to think of as negative, like being alone, mm-hmm. like being broken, mm-hmm. uh, like being made of lots of different parts, mm-hmm. um, being on the margins. All of those things, which the apartment kind of has a lot of that to it, right? And your neighborhood has a lot of those things to it. Um, and society tells us those things are bad. 
But yeah. you write a lot about how those things made you. You know, thank you so much. That's a really beautiful way to look at it. And you also make me feel like, wow, if that's what, if that's how you see it, then I succeeded. And because I really wanted, <laughs> I, you know, to be a writer, you, and I was joking to somebody the other day that an underrecognized part of being a writer is the capacity to spend huge amounts of time alone. I'm part of why I haven't had roommates and lived with people much is that I really want and need that continuous flow of introspection uh, at times. And I got it with this gift of this wonderful apartment. But also, I think, you know, I moved into a Black neighborhood. I learned a huge amount from that. I think also we're always told in this culture, oh, you'll feel comfortable around people like you. And it's like, maybe you will, although... I never felt there were people like me. I was a girl in a family of boys in a liberal Jewish family in an anti-Semitic conservative neighborhood, a bookish girl in an anti-intellectual town, and always kind of a weirdo and a misfit. And the diversity of San Francisco felt like a huge embrace that nobody... It wasn't a homogenous bunch of people who fit in, and I didn't. It was immigrants for whom English was a sixth language. It was the gay men who were such a huge and joyous and positive force in my coming up. It was the black neighborhood and the black neighbors and friends right there who taught me so much. It was the Native American land rights movement I joined at the beginning of the 1990s. You know, and so being around people who are different was important. And then also you mentioned what's often called marginality. Living in San Francisco back in those days before Silicon Valley supernova or metastasized or whatever the hell it did to become a global power center, <laughs> we're always told that, oh, the center of the world is elsewhere. Europe is the great font of culture. New York is the great cultural center of the U.S. You're out there in the sticks where nothing ever happened and nothing matters. And I actually had a wonderful student who'd been in Bombay and then in New York her whole life, came out to San Francisco and was like, it's horrible being here because I'm not in the center anymore. And students teach you so much. I had to go home and think of, well, what's my answer to that? And that's also a big part of my book from 15 years ago, I guess 17 years ago now, Hope in the Dark, which is about how the things that matter most, the things that change the world, the new ideas, the great movements are marginal when they begin. Not everyone agrees that freeing the slaves is an awesome idea and it's seen as crazy extremism and impossible when only slaves and a few abolitionists have it. And, you know, and then everything changes. Everything comes from the margins. That's the generative place, the kind of shadowy backstage, ignored, overlooked, dismissed spaces are where things happen. And I think also where things happen in our psyches. A big part of trying to have a creative life is recognizing the thinking that really matters, the clarity, the understanding, the next step doesn't always come by charging straight at something. Sometimes going away from it and doing something else lets you come back. You don't really know where the ideas come from, where the language comes from, because there are margins and shadowy places within yourself too. So yeah, and of course all these communities I'm talking about, immigrants, indigenous people, black people, queer people who were so much my 
inspiration and education growing up in the city were people who were supposed to be marginalized, although they were also building worlds that they were at the center of and protecting places where they were at the center of in ways that were also really important. I'd, sometimes it's like, who's margins? And the mainstream is always saying, if, if you're not with us, you're marginal. And it's like, yeah, hey, straight, white, rich guy, you're pretty marginal to what's going on over here, too. Did you know that? And of course, they don't mm-hmm. always. That reminds me of a question I, I was thinking about a lot uh, for you, which is the, it's, it's in, in a way, it's another gift of these things that sometimes we're told are not not good, marginality, indifference, um, isolation, all of those things, uh, which is you talk about that double vision that um, W.E.B. Dubois talks about um, that uh, African-Americans have mm-hmm. and that almost everyone who's marginalized has some version of it because we have to see through the eyes of straight white guys, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of us who aren't that have to learn the skill of seeing through their eyes. And that's a, that is a skill. That is a gift to be able to do that. And you write that these straight white guys, they suffer from never having to do that. They lack imagination. Yeah, I think that we straight white men are not often asked to imagine what it's like to be somebody else. Actually, what suddenly comes to mind is something that happened to my lovely, lovely straight white boyfriend throughout a lot of my 20s. We're at the stud, a great punky leather bar in the early 80s. And he was probably about five foot eight, maybe five nine. A huge leather man grabbed his ass at the bar. And it was so interesting. He was really intimidated and unnerved and joked that he was afraid to go to the parking lot by himself. And I was actually stoked because I was like, now you know what it's like to be me everywhere where somebody might grab me. I don't necessarily feel safe. I don't know what their intentions are. And I know that they have more power than me in various ways. So I was just so happy I had that experience. But yeah, something I read about, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I didn't want him to be injured or raped or anything like that. And the leather man was probably a lout and maybe drunk, but was probably not an assailant. But, um, you know, I also wrote about how through reading, if you're not a, if you're not white, if you're not male, you've probably spent a huge amount of your life being somebody else in your reading experience. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like there's a, a certain amount of that is good. We shouldn't be ourselves all the time because then we don't expand our boundaries, but we should be ourselves some of the time. There is something reinforcing and comforting about recognizing your own experience, hearing somebody else who shares it with you. And if you're not cisgender, straight, white, male, first world, very, you know, able-bodied, you might have had a really hard time finding people like you. It's gotten so much better in the last few decades. But as a young woman growing up and an English major, almost all the books I was told to read and told were important were told from a male point of view and women didn't exist or women were orifices and handmaidens and baggage and vixens and demonesses, but not actual (laughs) imaginable people. You know, there are are those books by men are so often framed as though women do what they do out of some sort of demonicness rather than, oh, they're people who are trying to just, just get through the day too. 
or and women are failures if they're not totally organizing themselves around men's needs you know and sometimes even when they are their failures because a woman in under patriarchy is always not enough for too much there is no you know there is no victory in a system in which you are categorically a failure so yeah that wde dubois thing is so great and john berger a great beautiful wonderful essayist uh, wrote in his landmark project, Ways of Seeing, in the 60s, about how women are also always having that double vision. They have to see themselves and are taught to see themselves as men see you. And poor young women, I'm so glad I'm not so young and don't work so hard at it, are constantly being told they have to position that make themselves attractive to men and then are also being blamed if men do terrible things to them it's their fault for being desirable and so there's the curse of not being desired and the curse of being desired and did i mention that there's no right way to be a woman in this system (laughs) but you are constantly told your worth and your value your visibility comes from recognition you know, by men, usually recognition as a sexual, desirable, attractive being, and you depend on this approval. And it's so destructive and uh, yeah. and so ordinary. And I, had, of course, had lots of it, too. I was so convinced that I was not good enough, not pretty enough, that my body, which was a tall, thin, white body, was so full of flaws and shortcomings and had been humiliated by about it by my family growing up and was just so so just wrought with shame and anxiety and you must sleep with men because you must prove that you're sexy but you might be found wanting in some way and so much shame goes with that and you're just so paralyzed between them I must do this I can't do this I need to do this I will fail if I try to do it and God God being young is hard. This is so much just a book about that process of making yourself, and which is such a hard job that people are doing in their teens and 20s. And we, I don't think we recognize that they're engaged in this great creative act of decisions and choices and questing for values and paths to be on. And also a period when you're being judged so harshly and people are so eager to tell you that you've just failed and that you need to have already gotten it all together as a social and sexual being when you're just starting out and maybe there's no rush and maybe going slow is better and maybe this one thing is better than trying to be everything to everyone. You use and and occasionally discard a lot of different metaphors for our journey through life. Like even if it is a journey, right? It's a journey, a thread. Yeah. Who knows? A collage. But one of the lines that really struck me was you talk about um, entering the land of adulthood being a new immigrant to the land of adulthood. And I wrote in the margins, where no one is a native. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us have been there for a while, and some of us should have our visas revoked. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But there is no, there's no, there's no one really to to always be able to know the right way to do it, right? Like we kind of form some consensus, but everyone has to rediscover that land on their own, really. Or at least I I feel like I, I have. But I also think that's a gift. That's a gift of, of sorts to have yeah. to, to, to have to decide for myself what that land is. 
I think also a lot of us start out with instructions from our family and part of adulthood is being far Mm -hmm. enough away from them to feel free enough to say, well, that's not actually working for me. You know, that's not, you know, like having, you know, being clever and witty at other people's expense like we were around the dinner table actually is a kind of unkindness I don't like in others. And hey, actually, maybe I shouldn't like it in myself. And how else should I be? And who should I choose choose to be around? And that was one of my, you know, developments was rethinking just how I wanted to be treated and whether that was okay and how I should treat other people. But yeah, I think there's there's two things that come up there. One of which is suddenly at 18, you're told you're an adult and it's like you've just arrived in a new country, you know, um, paying bills and f- being responsible for your life is this brand new adventure. And some people fall back and go home again. Some people are so ready for it. Some people develop in stages. But another thing I think that's a real problem is that we act like wisdom accrues inherently. And, um, you know, on the one hand, we say, oh, you're 18, you're an adult, as though the d- being 18 and 80 was all the same category called adult. On the other hand, we act <laughs> as though wisdom accumulates inherently and the young lack it and the old have it. I feel like I was a deeply unwise people, but I meet a lot of really wise young people now. And God knows I meet a lot of foolish old people a lot, and see a lot of them in public life. So it's a, it's a crapshoot. How you were brought up, you know, and that's another thing is that sometimes wisdom accumulates individually, sometimes it doesn't. But also I feel like sometimes we we acquire it as a culture. And I have been writing yeah. about feminist stuff since 1985 when I did a punk rock magazine story about violence against women. And um, But I have learned so much from the conversation since 2012 or 2013 about how violence impacts you, the nature of violence, why all the ways that institutions, including the judiciary, fail to address violence in ways that actually punish perpetrators more than victims. You know, how domestic violence is part of a broader spectrum that we can call course of control, of diminishment and domination and in domestic relationships of so many working parts. And a lot of the wisdom has come from younger women who sometimes because they got the benefit of all this feminism earlier, so we older feminists get some credit, sometimes because they don't have our baggage and they see past us or see freshly or refuse to accept things that we've accepted. So it's been a really interesting and intergenerational conversation and if there's any triumphalism in this book, it's that this thing that I felt so isolated by, oh my God, I'm in a world full of men who want to harm me and nobody even wants to have a real conversation about it. They just want to tell me how to adapt to it. As though I suggest, just, should just accept that men like to murder women and therefore I can't do this or wear that or, or say this or go there. And... um now we're really having that conversation and we're not accepting it. And it's pretty exciting. And speaking of that conversation, I want to have that specific conversation, which is what this book is really about, violence against women. But first, we're going to take a short break. Quip. The makers of the Quip electric toothbrush want you to know that one single discovery matters more than anything else for your dental care. It is simply this. If you have good habits... 
you are good. I don't think they mean morally. I think they mean like you're good to go. Although maybe morally too, who knows? But this means that brushing for two minutes twice a day and flossing regularly, no matter what brand you use, Quip makes that simple though. Starting with that electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and an anti-cavity toothpaste. Quip's electric brush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. The Quip floss dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough. Plus, Quip delivers fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping, so your routine is always right. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you will get your first refill for free. That's your first refill for free at getquip.com slash friends. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, and that is why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Ritual left out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some traditional multivitamins. As everyone who listens to this podcast knows, I do love my Ritual of Ritual. Uh, What I love especially about it is that it is a pleasure to take. It doesn't make you sick to your stomach. They are like aesthetically pretty to look at. And I probably value too much the little minty tab inside of it that makes me uh, start my day with a inhalation of fresh breath. The ingredients are just as important, of course, and those ingredients are traceable and transparent. For obsessive label readers, Ritual uses vegan-certified, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients, and their sources are out there for the whole world to see because you deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. Ritual uses high-quality ingredients such as vegan agel oil instead of fish oil, which comes from the fermentation of microalgae, a patented process that leaves minimal environmental contamination. And then there's the folic acid. 40% of women cannot properly utilize the synthetic form of folate, folic acid, which can be found in many multivitamins. But Ritual uses folate in its absorbable form, which covers women's needs. Daily changes lead to big results, so start out small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off the first three months. Try it out. Satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash friends for 10% off your first three months. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So, one of the other big ideas that I got from your book was this idea of violence against women, patriarchy in general, as an ongoing war, really, uh, of, of which rape and other kinds of physical violence are just a part, that they are just the, the casualties, the physical casualties. But we are all in this. You actually talk to someone who studies PTSD, and that's, I, I feel that's where this metaphor comes from. Yeah, David Morris, who wrote a beautiful book uh, about PTSD, has been a great feminist ally. And he says that 
you know, more women end up with PTSD from being raped than from, you know, than, than soldiers from, from being in a war. And I'm grateful he recognizes that, but the culture hasn't. You know, and I'm grateful that he makes that analogy to war. But something I really wanted to do, because we have so many memoirs that are about gender violence where something exceptionally horrible happened to the woman, is to write a book about just being an ordinary woman in a world of gender violence. Maybe because I've spent so much time walking around by myself since I was really young, I've had a little bit more street harassment than a lot of women. But I wanted to say that it's not either some one terrible thing happened to you or it didn't. You were beaten or you weren't. You were raped or you weren't. You were murdered or almost murdered or you weren't. Although those women are all in my, you know, part of the narrative of those women. I know those, I know women to whom all those things have happened, including a number of women who've almost been murdered. And, um, but I wanted to say that just to live in a world where you're constantly being menaced as girls and young women often are, just to live in a world where everything, including popular culture, David Lynch and Alfred Hitchcock and Lars von Trier and everyone else, seems to take great pleasure in portraying the degradation and destruction of women. And we haven't even talked about porn, mainstream porn. <laughs> you know, it really has an impact on you. I'm real, fully realizing at 19, at 18 or 19, wow, lots of men want to annihilate me. And nobody even thinks that's weird or a human rights or civil rights problem or that it shouldn't be like that. Of course, feminists were talking about this in the 80s, but they were far away from where I was. And it would take me a while for me to find my way to them and join them. And everyone around me was just treating it like it was as normal as the weather. Hey, it's raining. Get an umbrella. Hey, lots of men want to torture you to death. Um, you know, buy a gun, get a knife, never go anywhere without a man, take a taxi, move to a bourgeois white neighborhood. Although some of the worst things that happened to me were in bourgeois white neighborhoods, you know, and it was just like, hey, hey, girl, adapt to this. This is just how it is. We don't have even have a problem with it. We don't even think it's outrageous that lots of men want to kill you. Hey, whatever. And you, like, even to get people to frame it like that, it was just seen as, Let's. You should be taking ordinary precautions against a thing we don't mm-hmm. want to even call by its real name. And not calling things by their name is how so much destruction is perpetrated, whether it's environmental destruction, institutional racism, or what. And so, so much of my work as a writer has been, as the title of my last anthology, is calling things by their true name. I sort of want to return to this idea that we're in this ongoing war, um, that being a woman uh, or female-identified person even, in a way like you, 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 you know, suffer PTSD by existing in this world that wants to kill you because we are in a world that wants to kill us, right? Yes. When you quote a friend of yours, a beautiful quote, uh, young women spend a lot of time imagining how they'll die. That my friend Heather Smith, who's an amazing writer and an editor at Sierra Magazine, said something like, part of being a young woman is constantly being instructed on, on how not to be murdered. And like young uh. black men being given the talk about how not to be get killed by the authorities, young women are given instructions. And 
I love it that we talk about what happens with young black men. I wish we'd talk more about how much mothers and adult women are trying to tell young women they want to harm you and here's what you need mm-hmm. to know and do. And so often what's so sad about it is on all these fronts is that we're saying you need to give up some of your freedom. You need to be anxious. You need to imagine that people want to harm you. You need to imagine yourself dead. And that takes a real toll on you. When In my case, I had so much street harassment happening to me. And I've when I was 18 and 19 and 20 and 21. And I think as a really young woman, you're the target, partly because we idealize helplessness and lack of confidence as feminine traits. But really, they're looking for women who aren't going to stand their ground, who aren't confident, who aren't going to say, I'm going to flag down this car and ask them to help me. I'm going to chew you out. I'm going to tell you what's what. I'm so much tougher now than I was then, partly because I trust my own judgment. Nobody can tell me what's what. Um, partly because I'm willing to ask for help. I'm willing to make a scene. I don't care if I'm, you know, if it looks silly or overblown or whatever. But I want to say also that we call it harassment, which feels like a trivial word. You know, if somebody says something obnoxious to you, that's one thing. But what happens so often to young women is some guy asks you to smile, and if you don't comply, and maybe even if you do, he escalates. And if you don't essentially provide unctuous adoration or sexual service on this spot or whatever's being demanded, that guy can turn on you and become enraged. And there was a video I saw a couple years ago where some guy demands that from a woman at a gas station. He actually ends up jumping up and down in rage on her windshield. And like that woman did not come to a gas station to meet the needs of male strangers. She is not a public service provider to men. She's a, she came there to get gas for hell's sake. And and this man is so unable to manage himself because a, a complete stranger was not obedient. He flies into a rage. And described like that, that seems really weird, except it happened to me a hundred times. And these men were so angry and so menacing. And I had death threats. I had people stalking me. I have never been raped, but I've had a lot of close calls and just so much weird stuff happening to me, so much gaslighting up around it. And then also, this is also a book about voice. I tell a number of stories where the worst thing that happened in a way was not this menace or being mugged or, you know, something like that, but that when I went to tell the people who should have listened to me, and this also happened to me when I had men misbehaving in the publishing industry, when I went to tell people that this was happening, they treated me as though I was not competent or reliable about my own experience. I was training to become a journalist and a nonfiction writer by the time I was 21 and still being told that I was not a reliable witness to my own experience. And that's part of what happens to women. Uh, with all this is not only do these terrible things happen to you, but nobody wants to hear you. They blame you. They don't believe you. They tell you that you're subjective and not objective, that you're not as reliable as the perpetrator, a witness, that it's your, you know, they tell you, there's so many ways they tell you they're not going to listen to you or that you don't matter. For instance, you might tell someone on live television, why don't you believe him? Why would he lie? That might be a thing that would, yeah. would happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, no, and we've seen, and that's part. Of, <laughs> that's part of what I think's been so great about this feminist education of the last several years is we've kind of taken out all the justifications for assuming men never lie that they didn't rape that person, and women always lie that they were raped, or you know that that false rape act. We we have debunked the myth that false rape accusations are common and real rapes are rare. And that's been a big, a big house cleaning. But so, but also so much of what these things are about that I think is also a really important argument in the book is that this stuff that happens to you on the street and in other arenas is about the fact that your voice doesn't matter. If you have a voice, you can say, I don't want that. Leave me alone. I'm not interested. And that will be respected. That's what it means to have a voice. And these men are explicitly proving that your voice has no power. You can't tell them to stop. I was so defeated that a lot of times I didn't even try to tell people point blank to stop. And one of the times I cursed back at a guy who was saying pretty sleazy, profane things to me. He threatened to kill me and seemed like he might quite possibly try if we weren't in a busy neighborhood in the middle of the day. But then also you go to other people and they don't believe you. So you're, you know, so much of what happens. And a lot of women, a lot of rapists operate on the assumption that nobody will listen to the victim. They, they won't listen. She might not even try to speak up because she'll be punished for doing so. And we've seen lots of that. Or she won't be believed. And we've seen lots of that. Or she'll be believed. But the system will still punish her and not him. Yeah, and there will be no consequences for speaking up. We've seen what happened when Anita Hill spoke up, when Christine Blasey Ford spoke up, when these incredibly distinguished, thoughtful women who were kind of best-case scenario witnesses to their own experience spoke up and were mocked, humiliated, discredited, even though other people were backing them up in various ways. And the default that men... Men are reliable and women are not. Men are objective and women are not. Is a big part of the system that silences women, which sets us up to be victims. And that silencing is reenacted as violence. I know. I mean, that violence is a kind of silencing, and it depends on the silence of women to get away with it. My actions every day are affected by the threat of sexual violence. That's a war. The, the route I take on my run, where I park my car, what time I choose to go to the drugstore, you know, all of those things. In the back of my mind, there's because if I don't do this the right way, I may get raped. And that pervasiveness, it is so hard. It, it is that problem of not being able to see through another person's eyes, perhaps. Like, I don't know if it's possible to communicate that level of because it doesn't even feel like a threat. It's not like we walk around scared all the time either, right? Yeah, no, and it's just a constant like, okay, this guy on the airplane or the bus is getting in my space with his man spreading and his elbows. And if I tell him to like get out of my space, will he become enraged? And, you know, if he becomes enraged, will he become physically violent? Should I just put up with the fact that he's now got a third of my seat as well as all of his seat? There's just constantly these little calculations. I had the option of living in this beautiful glass house with one of the best views in the Bay Area. And when some friends of mine moved out the last year, 
And in so many ways, it was everything I wanted. And the reason I couldn't do it was because I didn't feel safe. And so, you know, I couldn't live in this incredibly magical, desirable place because to live alone as a woman in a glass house in open space is scary. You know, I've, like you, I've made all these decisions. And like you, I found that a lot of men can't even imagine because of that empathic fail of not knowing what it's like. But what does it take to understand that level of threat? What does it take to understand? Does it, does someone have to in order to change or, or well, can we simply count on like eventual evolution? I, one thing I would say is that black men and gay men understand what it means to live feeling yes, threatened yes. most places you'll be. And I've seen both constituencies be smart and insightful feminist allies. And it's been exciting. You know, this is one of the changes of the last several years is that feminism is no longer treated as 100% women's work. And I Mm -hmm. am embarrassed to say how late in life I realized like, wow, we have always treated feminism as women's work, but women alone can no no more eradicate misogyny than people of color alone can eradicate racism. And yet we've treated it as though it's not men, you know, we shouldn't be even be troubling men with this thing that's just what silly women want. But I have seen a number of black men on Twitter and elsewhere and in my personal life and so many gay men absolutely get what the menace is. They get also what the subtler forms of discrimination in social settings, in social media, in media framings are. And they've been great. Because, and, um, and some straight white men do too. And, you know, I think em- empathy is unevenly distributed. Um, some people are... I think gain it from being marginalized in some way or being oppressed in some way. Some people are exceptionally empathic. You know, I think of it in other ways. There are, there are groups, there are ethnic groups that have experienced oppression that only focus on their own oppression. But one of the most moving things I've seen in my adult life is how often Japanese Americans stand up for other people experiencing Mm-hmm. Since at least since nine eleven, um, you know, harassment for uh, religion, ethnicity, etc. I've seen Japanese Americans say never again. We know what it was to be targeted, interned, um, cast out, deprived of our rights, and we're going to stand up for Muslims. We're going to stand up for Middle Easterners. We're going to stand up for refugees and immigrants. And so some people, some some people, are able to, you know. Understand, even though they haven't had that experience, some people are able to translate their experience of oppression into others, and some can't. And there isn't a formula, but I think these incredible conversations have helped uh, Mm. people who are not experiencing it understand it so much better. And I've seen a lot of men understand it better, partly because the conversation is bigger and deeper and smarter and louder because... You know, so many more what people are in it. I also think one of the boring feminist transformations that doesn't get taken into stock enough is that women became judges and lawyers and, you know, executive editors of newspapers and assignment editors and producers and news programs and et cetera. Women and people who recognize and valued women's voices and experiences 
So when some of these stories broke, again, because what Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and so many other men were doing, they'd been doing for decades, suddenly people were ready to hear the story and treat it as something really serious. And also to connect the dots, because what happened all my life until this sudden upheaval was that every hideous act of violence against a woman was treated as an anomaly and people wouldn't see how much O.J. Simpson fit into classic domestic violence patterns because suddenly we, you know, the conversation about domestic violence got hushed up around the gruesome murder of Nicole Simpson, Nicole Brown Simpson and Um, the man who was at her house when and who was murdered with her, you know, and that people would not connect the dots and say this fits a pattern. And if you add up all the all the dots in the pattern, you see an epidemic. And if you see an epidemic, you should treat it as an epidemic, as a public health epidemic that actually costs our society billions of dollars in missed work, um, hospital expenses, Dentistry, the dentistry costs of domestic (laughs) violence are truly chilling, you know, and just a psychic impact. Don't you wish you were at the post office right now? Me neither. Running a business or keeping up with your schedule takes a lot of time, and sometimes there aren't enough hours in the day to get to the post office. You've got better and more important things to do. And anything you can do at the post office, you can do at Stamps.com. Their on-demand postage means you can skip that trip to the post office. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Time isn't the only thing you'll be saving. With Stamps.com, you can get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It is no wonder 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's Stamps.com, enter friends for a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. Stamps.com, enter friends. So I was actually thinking about the idea of violence against women as an epidemic because, mm-hmm. of course, we are all being told to wash our hands a lot now, not touch our face, et cetera. And um, because there is this virus that people are very scared of, uh, it has killed nine people in the U.S., and that is nine people too many. And there are, you know, literally countless lives untu- uh, that have been touched by that. But 2,237 women... <laughs> died in 2017. That's the latest number I could find. It's about four women a day from intimate partner violence. And I was thinking about, you know, and and, uh, there were 113 uh, children that died in school shootings. And those are all horrible numbers, and I'm not making this a contest. But wouldn't it be interesting to see a culture react to the epidemic of violence against female-identified people as though it were, let's say, an infection. That's what I was thinking. Like, what would be the equivalent of having of asking people to change their daily— because people right now are willing to change their daily behavior because they're scared of this virus. 
And what's interesting, though, is what daily behavior would we have to change? We would have to change what happens in intimate relationships and families. And we would also have to look at there are these extreme things that result in all these deaths. And um, but there's also, you know, all the other ways it happens because men murder because some men murder some women. Women are more instructed to placate, to give way, to let him take up more room, whether it's like on the seat on the airplane or in the the conversation, uh, you know, et cetera. And we know we know what to do with viruses. We don't need, know what to do with ancient social structures and we have changed them a lot we have changed them a lot and one of the things i i, I am an optim i am a hopeful feminist even with yes, all the hideous femi- with all the hideousness out there because i remember you know partly from personal experience partly from you know re- reading the records how much worse it was and one of the things i feel when people are like oh feminism hasn't changed anything or feminism failed all that stuff people were really saying a lot more before this current wave of feminism is like do you have any idea how much things have changed into the nine you know into the 1990s there were states in the u.s that still did not recognize marital rape if you married someone you could rape her all you wanted um because as the law essentially recognized a woman as a possession of a man, you know, until into the 1970s or 1980s, women could not make financial and sometimes medical decisions independent of their husbands. The law essentially established marriage as an ownership uh, relationship. And so we are changing these things. And I do feel like if you look at patriarchy as something that's thousands of years old, that we've made huge inroads on, that's, you know, it's fairly optimistic to say that, you know, we have, you know, it, it looks it looks good up to a point, but it's still so devastating. It still impacts us all every day. And I would like to do whatever the equivalent of pulling the fire alarm is and say this needs to change dramatically. The problem is we know how to isolate a virus. We don't need know how to isolate or eradicate all the subtle ways in which boys, you know, many of whom are now men, sometimes old men, have been taught that they matter more than other people, that other people should give way and obey them, that they have the right to dominate, sometimes unto death, other people. Because the thing I talk about a lot that I don't always see other people talking about is the entitlement to violence. And that, in a way, is the most shocking thing to me. Violence is authoritarian. I have the right to control you. I have the right to punish you. Sometimes I even allocate unto myself the right to annihilate you is what people who physically harm or murder another person do. And I'm an anti-authoritarian. I kind of don't feel that anybody has the right (laughs) to harm anybody else. And that's because everybody matters. Everybody has inherent value. Everybody has rights. You know, the police don't have the right to shoot unarmed people who are not posing an immediate threat or to make up threats after they've shot someone in the back. You know, people, we don't have the right to impose this horrible, this deep physical harm on refugees that we are with these horrible camps and refusing them at the border. And, you know, in 
on the street and with stranger violence and in personal relationships, nobody has the right to harm anybody else. And, um, you know, which is both dumb sounding in its simplicity. And yet, if it was actually observed as how we lived, it would be, everything would be radically different. I do want to wrap up our conversation talking about hope because that's something I learned from your memoir is that your entire political writing career started out of a, a, a affirmation of hope that this piece you wrote after an unfortunate <laughs> interaction <laughs> well put at a at an academic an academic setting um that it came from a place of you wanting to to shout out hope and you have a whole book right hope in dark places right? hope in the dark hope in the dark uh, it's a pro darkness dark. book hope dark places dark. is a sort of yes. uh, which is often thought to be uh deplores darkness was i think darkness as the mysterious the shadowy the unknown the margins outside the limelight our magical generative places. But yeah, and um, I had been writing politically. I wrote, a, I wrote about Native American rights and nuclear war. Hope in the Dark, which began as an essay I put out, the first thing I really circulated on the internet and saw go viral, was partly the accumulation of observations I'd had for a long while about how change happens, how it begins in the margins, um, how ordinary people massed together have extraordinary transformative power to change history, um, of how many victory stories we have that we don't add up because the left is good at feeling miserable and powerless, and we don't celebrate those stories and tell them enough. But the part of the spur to this is another funny story about horrible experiences with men. Um, and there are so many stories, some of them extremely funny, um, some of them about extremely famous men in this memoir of mine, <laughs> Recollections of My Non-Existence. Yes. I was supposed to present this work I was doing on Yosemite National Park, a place I wrote about in my two in my 1994 book savage dreams where native people were made to disappear from when james savage the eponym of the book marched in to drive the native people out to maximize gold rush economic opportunity to how the park service and the environmental movement made them disappear i went back a decade later with a photography project and was really astonished thinking that i was and was really astonished to find that not only were we documenting changes over 130 years since some remarkable photographs have been taken of a very different landscape, but even over the last 10 years, remarkable things had happened. The park had recognized the rights and presence and environmental impact in positive ways of Native people. Native people had established a stronger presence, but also just the demographics of the park had changed. It no longer felt like it was an erased Native worldview and a dominant white worldview. California was changing demographically. There were a lot of Asian and Latino people in the park, and it just felt really hopeful to me. And I was writing about it. I presented in this academic setting where a man who already had it in for me, an academic man, was given half an hour essentially to go after me. And I was told by mutual friends that he was angry. I had written more books than him. I, a mere younger woman. But also he found my hopefulness because I had 
which was not just, you know, a default setting was because I had actually witnessed this extraordinary change. Um, Unpalatable. He liked the story that everything was getting worse. And maybe from a white male perspective, everything was getting worse. For those of us who'd been marginalized in some way, I was seeing what you could call demarginalization. So he launched this really personal, vindictive, ad hominem attack on me. And I was teaching at an art school. I'd brought an all-female group of students thinking they were going to see the wonders of beautiful academic rigor. And instead, they just saw the shitty attack <laughs> by a rancorous man. And I wrote a letter, you know, the next over the next couple of days, trying to put out the case for hope. And then as, and this was right around the, when the, the war on Iraq broke out in March of 2003. And I just saw so much dismay from people, people I love, people I'd been working with as an anti-war activist to say, because we didn't stop the war altogether, we did nothing, which was not true. We had changed the timing and the shape of the war in ways that I think gave Iraqi people some time to prepare and maybe be safer. Um, some countries had withdrawn because of their their popular uprisings. Many things had happened. But people were saying, we didn't stop the war, which was true. But then they started saying, therefore, we achieved nothing, which was not true. And then even less true, because we never accomplish anything, because we have no power, and they were in that depressive tailspin. And I wanted to encourage them, not in the not in the make-nice way, but to say, actually, we're all very powerful together. Actually, we've changed the world time and time again. Actually, you don't get to give up because you do have power, and we can and have win and there are many things worth fighting for so you need to stay out there and that was the genesis of a hope in the dark was both wanting to encourage and comfort these beautiful anti-war forces and tell a different story about where power lies and how history unfolds and also wanting to counter this really personal, sour ad hominem attack on me and my big ideas. So, And it's something I've often found. And I joked once that Dante had Beatrice, but Orwell had Stalin, that it's often the negative and adversarial and hideous things that prompt political writers, nonfiction writers, to think harder, write more, go out there and address and what's going on to counter the dominant narrative or the major forces out there. And that's so often been the case with me. And to give other people hope. And that is the perfect place to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I, I really privileged to talk to you. Thank you. The privilege and pleasure were, were mine. Thank you so much. And that is it for the show. Recollections of My Non-Existence is Rebecca's 15th book. She's also the author of A Paradise Built in Hell, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, and Wonderlust, A History of Walking. They are all worth reading. And I want to add that thinking about hope is always useful, but I feel incredibly fortunate to have talked to Rebecca about hope on this day, which happens to be the day after Super Tuesday. Because today, thinking about hope feels not just useful, but necessary. Take care of yourselves. 
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.